0: So I want to introduce our teacher tonight. Our teacher is Dr. Kyle Dunham. He's over here. Uh, Dr. Dunham is a new professor at Detroit Baptist Seminary, where I taught for 32 years. He's a graduate of the seminary, got a couple of different master's degrees there. Then he went to uh, the master's seminary in California and got his doctorate in Old Testament. And for the last five years, he's been teaching at Virginia Beach Theological Seminary. Why anybody would want to leave Virginia Beach and come to Michigan, I don't know, but he did. Anyway, We're thankful that, I'm thankful that he did. Uh, he's taken the place of, of Dr. Bob McCabe. Dr. McCabe has taught here on a number of occasions. He retired this year, and Dr. Dunham has come after five years teaching at a, kind of a sister seminary to teach at Detroit Baptist Seminary. So we're really thrilled. I'm really thrilled that he's there at the seminary. And so we thought we'd have him come uh, this semester and teach the Book of Proverbs for us. And so, uh, Kyle, go ahead. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. You guys got books
1: back there? I believe so. Okay. All right. Well, if everybody has a book, uh, you'll want to have that as we refer to some things as we go along. So make sure you grab that. I'm very thankful to be here tonight and looking forward to our study. Uh, if you started to read through the notes, don't get too frightened off yet. Uh, I know there's some material in there that's a little technical, but I promise I will not just stand up here and read the notes, okay? That's uh, not what I'm going to do, so I'm going to try to be more interactive. and. Uh, Really, I'm looking forward to this time of studying Proverbs together. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, my background is in wisdom literature. Uh, when I was doing my dissertation at the Master's Seminary, I was studying the book of Job. Uh, but I've also done a lot of study in the book of Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. Uh, so I really enjoy the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And I'm looking forward to our study together. I want to begin tonight, if you have your Bibles, in an unusual place. And that's in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read a passage of Scripture. I'll open up in prayer, and then I have a few questions I'm going to throw out to you by way of starting the discussion for this evening. Now, why would we start a study of the book of Proverbs in the book of 1 Corinthians? Uh, The Apostle Paul here has some interesting things to say about wisdom. And as we work through Proverbs during the course of this semester, uh, we're going to be asking ourselves a lot of questions about what is wisdom? How does the world define wisdom? How does God define wisdom? And how should we as Christians seek to be wise people? And I think the Proverbs, uh, the book of Proverbs has a lot to offer in that regard. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I begin here because with the Apostle Paul, uh, as Christians, we realize that ultimately wisdom is centered in the person of who? Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So although we're reading an Old Testament book, we want to see ways in which it anticipates the consummate sage, the divine uh, God-man, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom for us from God. So we're going to be reading the book of Proverbs with a view to how we can glean wisdom through Christ. So I'm looking forward to our study. uh, And let me open in prayer, and then I'll say a few uh, (coughs) words about how our study will go tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word together, and I pray that you'd help us over the course of these several weeks. Uh, to gain understanding and insight i pray that we would gain wisdom that we would uh, desire it and seek it and pursue it as you have told us in your word to do i pray that uh, you would help us as a group to uh, learn how to read proverbs and how to apply it and i pray that you give us wisdom through this process that you would be pleased to help us be insightful and discerning particularly in the, the days in which we live We know it's necessary to have discernment and wisdom, and so we pray uh, that your word would transform our thinking so that we would become more like Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you uh, open up your notes there to page two, the first section is entitled Introduction to Reading Biblical Wisdom Literature, and I want to frame our discussion tonight by asking three questions that I'm going to uh, put up on the board and then answer in uh, in backwards fashion. The first is this. Who is Solomon? Who is Solomon? Uh, we'll talk about that because this is an important question when we come to the book of Proverbs. Secondly, what is a proverb? What is a proverb? We know that Uh, If you've been around in the church long, you know that uh, how we read the book of Proverbs can have a profound impact on different areas of our lives. For for instance, uh, many cite the proverb in uh, chapter 22, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And many uh, books have been written about that proverb. Uh, When we get there, I'll argue that I think we're misunderstanding that proverb, but knowing what a proverb is can really help us when we come to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. And then, thirdly, how do we read Proverbs? That is to say, the book of Proverbs. How should we read the book of Proverbs? All right, so uh, these are the questions we want to ask tonight, and uh, let me say a little bit more about this first question, who is Solomon, uh, and then we'll talk about how do we read the book of Proverbs. Uh, when we think about Solomon, if you go to Proverbs chapter one, the first verse of the book says the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, King of Israel. Now it may be fairly obvious when I say who is Solomon, uh, you may be thinking, well, that's fairly obvious from the old Testament, right? He's the son of David. He's the King in Israel, uh, so we know the figure of Solomon fairly well. And if I were to ask you, who is Solomon? Uh, what, what are some character traits of Solomon that you would shout out? Wisdom. Okay. Wisdom. All right, let's, let's deal with this one first. Uh, I took you to Proverbs, but if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, I have you turned to a few different passages. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, we notice something about Proverbs, uh, about Solomon, rather. Beginning of verse 29, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man. Including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Okay, so we know Solomon was a very wise king. Is there anything else you can tell me, though, about Solomon? Way too many wives. Okay. Yes.
0: <laughs>
1: many wives. So how wise was he really? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that in a <laughs> second. Somebody else shout
0: something up. Very well.
1: Okay, wealthy, right? Built the temple. Yes, Yes. he built the temple. Built the temple. Which was extremely important in Israelite history and uh, sets him apart from other kings in that fashion. Anything else? He started out materially unselfish because the first thing he asked for was wisdom. Okay, right. So he started his reign... By asking for wisdom,
0: okay. Anything else?
1: He was wiser than all men, not just wise. Right. In himself. Yes. He surpassed his contemporaries. Right. So a corollary. A corollary of this question, who is Solomon? When I say this, what I'm really saying is is Solomon qualified to write the book of Proverbs? Is Solomon qualified to write the book of Proverbs? When we look at point one, we would say, sure, right? He's a wise king. When we look at the last point, he was humble and at the beginning of his reign, he asked for wisdom, meaning you know, he could have had all these other things, and what does he ask for and uh, Gibeon, when the Lord appears to him, he asks for wisdom. He built the temple, meaning he was very concerned uh, for the proper worship of the Lord. If you read 1 Kings 8, for instance, uh, when he dedicates the temple during the festival of uh, tabernacles, booths in uh, 960 BC, he's, he has a lavish ceremony, and so he's very concerned that the Lord be worshipped correctly. The problem is, when we look at these two areas and what they led to, we begin to question, was he qualified to write the book of Proverbs? In fact, if you're in 1 Kings, turn with me to chapter 11. Chapter 11, and this is a sad commentary on Solomon's life. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, These are all nations that are idol-worshipping nations. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. So, is Solomon qualified to write the book of Proverbs? This is one of the tensions that we immediately are faced with when we come to biblical wisdom literature. Not only the book of Proverbs, but the book of Ecclesiastes, which many people would attribute to Solomon. I I would myself take it that Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. So when we come to these books of wisdom literature, how do we reconcile this innate tension that the wisest king of the Old Testament was also a king who was not fully devoted to the Lord? How do we reconcile this tension? Is that a question you've ever thought about?
0: Yes,
1: but none of them followed the Lord all the way, except for the one that got taken up in the whirlwind. And also... Enoch, yeah. Okay. You agree with that? So none of them. So none of them. Right, so there's a certain sense when we come to the book of Proverbs that we realize although Solomon was at the apex of wisdom, he didn't get all the way there. Right? He didn't quite meet the perfect standard so as we read proverbs and as we come to the book uh, i want to stress that we'll realize this is god's wisdom and revelation of course but solomon himself was not a pristine example in every respect of how this wisdom should be lived out and it's very interesting, if you read through Proverbs, to look at all these admonitions that, uh, that Solomon gives about uh, how his son should act. And then when we read the narrative of kings and we see Rehoboam, what do we think immediately? How foolish, how could the son of the wisest sage in Israel be so foolish? So when we are faced with this tension, my ultimate point here is to get to this, that We want to look to Christ as the fulfillment of wisdom. And so Proverbs helps to set the stage. And ultimately, as Christians, we realize that Jesus Christ is the consummation of wisdom. And so we're going to see how the book anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So let me get to a a few points here that I want to make as we move through. The first question I'm really going to address in more detail is how do we read Proverbs? What you have tonight is really the uh, first installment of probably two or three sections. My goal is for the first two weeks to introduce the book and talk about uh, why Solomon's the author and how we, read, how we should read a proverb, and then spend the latter part of the semester in the text and looking through how we uh, should apply it. Alright, so first though, we're going to look at how do we read Proverbs, and let me also encourage you as we go through this semester to be reading through the book of Proverbs. I estimated that if you read one chapter of Proverbs a day through the next 12 weeks, you'll get through the book two and a half times by the time we're done with this uh, term in Proverbs. If you read read two chapters a day, you'll get through it five and a half times. So let me encourage you to aim high and be seeking to read through Proverbs. It's really the best thing you can do to understand the book as we work through it and uh, seek to understand what it's about. All right, so the first section there, I'm introducing how to read biblical wisdom literature. And some of this is a little more technical, but I want to talk about uh, two things, two terms that I think are important uh, as we read through Proverbs. I say here, Proverbs must be read canonically. Okay, I'm going to put two words up on the board here. One is downstream, and the other is upstream. Okay, what do I mean by this? This is not necessarily a fishing analogy, though some might think that. When we come to the book of Proverbs, we want to look upstream to see where Solomon is taking previous scripture and using it to inform the wisdom he's presenting. Okay, so in other words, we would call this in in academics uh, an upstream connection. So in other words, how does Solomon apply creation theology? How does Solomon take Genesis 1 to 3 and apply it to everyday life? Because that's what he's doing. He's taking particularly creation theology uh, in the book of Genesis. But we also then want to look downstream. What I mean by that is how does Proverbs anticipate the New Testament? How does Proverbs set the stage for uh, the ultimate sage who's coming because we know as we read Proverbs that Solomon's not the guy. We might wish that he were the, the 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 consummate sage who was faithful to the end, but unfortunately that's not what the biblical narrative tells us. He fails, and he's a foil, really, for ultimate wisdom, which is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking downstream to see how uh, Proverbs anticipates and, and foreshadows the New Testament. Now that doesn't mean that uh, we're going to try to twist every proverb to make it say something about Christ. Okay, that's a, uh, when you come to the, the topic of what's called hermeneutics or how to study the Bible, we know that's an illegitimate thing to do. But we want to look at, in both directions and see how does Proverbs, how is it informed by earlier revelation and how does it inform later revelation? Okay, so if you get that distinction, I think that'll be helpful. Uh, as we work through it. So uh, we want to understand it in that set, in that way and see how it anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ. A few other things here uh, that I want to just mention by way of introduction, and we'll get to this more later in the course. When we come to Proverbs, we need to understand the book of Proverbs in terms of the two paths. And this is going to become a very important concept as we work through. Uh, what you'll notice is uh, the book of Proverbs really presents uh, two paths, that lead in vastly different directions. It's sort of like uh, you can imagine a simpleton, right? A naive, uh, young, inexperienced person. This is who the book is written to, okay? The young man who needs to be informed of wisdom. And if you can imagine Proverbs as two paths, right? And the, the simpleton is encouraged, exhorted to choose the right path. Uh, the right path which uh, the wise is on. And this is characterized by lady wisdom. And this ultimately leads to God himself. That is to say, if the young man follows the path of the wise and heeds the admonitions, he will listen to lady wisdom. And I think that's why Proverbs 31 ends with an exhortation about what the virtuous woman is because she's the embodiment of lady wisdom there are about 20 literary connections between Proverbs 31 woman and lady wisdom so in other words what he seems to be saying is young man if you follow the path of the wise and you listen to lady wisdom you will end up with your own Proverbs 31 wisdom lady wife and ultimately you'll come to god however if you pass if you decide not to go that route you'll follow the way of the fool who eventually becomes a scoffer, that's a hardened fool for which in Proverbs there's almost no hope. And who do you find on this path? Lady Folly. And this leads where? To Sheol, or the grave, destruction. Her house is a banquet for the dead, right? In in Proverbs 9. So. The two paths are important to understand, and the young man is is being encouraged, exhorted to follow this path, because once he gets too far along this path, he he becomes hardened in his sin, and, and folly gets bound up in his heart. Okay, so two paths, it's an important way to understand what's going on. And then we're going to try to understand the book in terms of its literary features. Now, Proverbs is a difficult book. Uh, There's a phrase called what's called by some scholars, lucky dipping. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term before, but that's where you sort of open up the Bible to whatever passage and determine what the Lord wants you to do on the basis of that passage, right? Uh, And some interesting things have been done in history by those who have taken that interpretive approach. Uh, We don't want to do that in Proverbs. The challenge, though, is... Proverbs does lend itself to randomly looking through the book for a piece of wisdom, right? Typically that's how the book is treated because it seems that many of these Proverbs are unrelated. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, if you've ever been reading through a chapter of Proverbs and you just wonder, do any of these Proverbs have anything in common? Are they just randomly put in here? I'm going to argue that there's an intentional arrangement to the book. And when we read Proverbs, we need to pay attention to the context of the proverb. Okay, that's a bit of a, maybe a different way of reading the book of Proverbs, but I think it does help us to see that there are important contextual concerns that inform how we should read Proverbs, so we want to pay attention to that as we go through the book. Okay? Any questions so far about anything I've said? All right. If not, then let's, uh, let's go to page number six page number six in your notes. I'll let you read through the introduction stuff up to page six. I've basically just covered it, uh, and you'll probably want some coffee when you read through that, but uh, it may have some some helpful stuff there if you can uh, weed through that. All right, so I want to talk about right now, how do we read Proverbs? What is a proverb, and how do we read Proverbs? If someone asked you, what is a proverb and how should we read this book of Proverbs, what would you say? Should we open the book and take every saying that's there and take it as normative that we need to live our lives absolutely by the Proverbs that are given in this book? For instance, what about proverbs that talk about how a bribe opens the way for someone who gives a bribe? Is that a normative proverb that tells us we should be bribing people to get what we want in life? Right? What, what about, uh, you know, this proverb we often talk about, train up a child in the way he should go. Does that mean that, you know, if if we do everything right, that's a guarantee that our children are going to love the Lord wholeheartedly when they mature? Okay, so how do we read proverbs? What should be our reading strategy when we come to a proverb? Any ideas? Yeah. Um, I
0: would say, in of generally speaking.
1: Okay, generally speaking. For so. The most part. Right. These yes. are truths that generally hold to be the case. Okay, it's not looking at every exception, but it's general truth. Okay, that's good.
0: Principles but not
1: promises. okay principles but not promises right So in other words, uh, this is looking at if if you do all that you can to follow the wisdom here, generally speaking things will turn out well right everybody agree so that's kind of how we would approach it. Now what if we do everything in proverbs and things don't turn out well? Well, then we have Job and Ecclesiastes, right, to deal with that. Uh, I call that the dark side of wisdom. So that's sort of what happens when the train still goes off the tracks, even when uh, a person has been wise. All right, so we understand that Proverbs, uh, as I say, I want to note here this uh, third paragraph on page six. Proverbs are not what we would call precise theological formulations or normative legal mandates, In other words, it's not suggesting that every proverb is normative for how you must dictate your life. In other words, some parts of Proverbs simply describe the way things are without necessarily commending the behavior, just saying this is how the world operates. This is how people are. So you have to understand. And I think this really comes true, and we'll talk more about this, but if you look at uh, how the beginning of the book Begins. It talks about to uh, in verse five. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Okay, the the word here describing that is the word cunning, which is related to uh, craftiness in the Old Testament. In other words, Proverbs is suggesting this is positive wisdom, but it's also the wisdom of the street. In other words, it's the wisdom of how. The bad part of creation also works because you need both. To be wise, you need to understand both uh, how the world should be and how the world really is. Right? And so uh, understanding both, this is what Jesus himself says to be uh, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So as with with regard to experience, we're innocent, but we understand the cunning of the evil one. As Paul said, we are not ignorant of his devices. Right? We understand that he is crafty. And so we have to understand that as well. I have a few uh, definitions of Proverbs here that are interesting. Miguel Cervantes said Proverbs are short sentences drawn from long experience. Uh, Ibn Ezra said Proverbs have three elements, few words, good sense, and a fine image. And then Wolfgang Meter, he's the world's leading Parameologist. There's a new word for you that you can take home and uh, play and scrabble. Uh, this What is a parameologist? It is someone who studies Proverbs. And he says Proverbs are short, generally known sentence of the folk. Okay, In other words, they're people. It's a grassroots wisdom sort of thing, which contains wisdom, truth, morals, and traditional views in a metaphorical, fixed, and memorable form handed down from generation to generation. In other words, it can't be too long but it's just long enough to be memorable, concise, and insightful. And when all those ingredients are there, it's a proverb that is generally handed down. Now, I want to play a little game with you. So if you turn to page 7, we're going to look at here at some examples of proverbs from around the world. And the reason I do this exercise is it helps us to begin to think about proverbs, not just as principles that we're so familiar with we never really listen to anymore here in our minds, we want to understand when a proverb expresses something concisely and memorably, it's really making a single point. It's making a single point. So look at uh, these American proverbs. You're probably familiar with this. And what I want to do is as I read the proverb, think about another way to say this. In other words, what is the principle? What is the proverb trying to say in a memorable way? Have you ever said this? The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence what does that mean what's that we want what we don't have. okay we want what we don't what we don't have or essentially it's saying be content right be content with what you have because the grass looks greener and if you grew up in farm country like i did it's always funny to drive by fields and seeing cows stretching trying to get the grass just on the other side of the fence it always looks greener but it isn't always actually so All right, what what about uh, the second one here? This was Harry Truman's uh, favorite proverb. He had this on his desk. The buck stops here. What does that mean? Take responsibility responsibility for your actions. So, uh, in other words, don't pass the buck or don't blame shift someone else. If you have kids at home, you know how that happens. Uh, What about crime doesn't pay? What does this mean? Okay, bad deeds have consequences. Right. No guts, no glory. Somebody said it. No guts, no glory. How would you take a, risk. take a risk? Okay. Take a risk. Well, how would we, uh, uh, compare that one to look before you leap? It's not here on the page, but what does look before you leap say? Be cautious. Be cautious. Okay. So we have proverbs that say opposite things. Don't we, we have a proverb that says strike while the iron's hot you know, or, uh, you know, go for it. No guts, no glory. But then we also have look before you leap. So, how do we know which proverb to use in a given situation? That's what wisdom is, right? So, we'll learn that as we go through. Wisdom is knowing what to say at the right time, the seasonable word. And so, uh, we see this even in Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. I don't know if you ever read through Proverbs 26 and thought maybe somebody made a mistake there. You know what I'm talking about? Look at there at that. Real quick, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Verse 4: Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Verse 5: Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Okay, is that a mistake? No. It's intentionally put together. So, which one is true? The answer is yes. They're both true. The wise man, the wise person knows when to answer and when not to answer. And the fact that the do not is put first, I think, gives a slight edge that it's probably often more appropriate to not answer a fool. But sometimes you have to. Right. Ronald Reagan was famous. You know, he wouldn't answer the critics that he thought were beneath his dignity. But sometimes you have to answer a fool. Because they will continue to spread their folly. Otherwise, all right. A few more of these. Nice guys finish last. Okay, so that's uh, more of a Machiavellian proverb, right? To just uh, go for it and and do what you have to do. Three strikes and you're out, right? You only get so many opportunities. It's the thought that counts. So effort is commendable. The early bird gets the worm. What is that saying? Prepared. Yep. Be prepared be diligent. The apple never falls far from the tree. This is one that gets quoted a lot in our house. Uh, the apple never falls far from the tree. What does that mean? Right. What what the, the big leopard does, the little leopard does, right? The big leopard has spots, the little leopard has spots and so on. So we, we see that in our lives. All right. Well, here's some other proverbs from other places in the world. Uh, in Germany, they have a proverb that is translated, the morning hour has gold in the mouth. Now, what do you think that would mean? Okay, get up early. This is their version of the early bird gets the worm. This is their version of it in German. All right, Native American, these are uh, some of the proverbs that, that they preserved. The, tear, the deer, though toothless, may accomplish something. Okay, so in other words, don't count out the weak person its sort of the, the tortoise and the hare type of scenario. Secondly, when the fox walks lame, the old rabbit hocks. Okay, what does that mean? When something's up, the fox is, is doing something that we should know better than to be fooled by. The old rabbit, the experienced one, gets as far away as possible. Okay. Uh, here are some from England. Hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Okay, this is kind of the Boy Scout motto there. Uh, There is honor among thieves. So even uh, people of ill repute have some sort of structure or hierarchy, some sort of expectation. Do right and fear no man. Uh, The Irish have many proverbs. They're they're, uh, legendary for their senses of humor. Uh, Don't buy butter for cats to lick. Okay, what does that mean? In other words, don't waste your resources. You should never stop the plow to kill a mouse. Okay, in other words, when you're engaged in a big task, don't let the little foxes spoil the vine, the vineyard. Okay, Don't stop. Uh, beauty is only skin deep. Ugliness goes to the bone. Okay, uh, In Persia, we, we can think maybe of uh, analogous proverbs we have. He who seeks will find at last. Okay, So be persistent. One must bake bread while the oven is hot. Our version is strike while the iron is hot. And then fire and water do not mix. How do we say that? Oil and, oil and, water, oil and water do not mix. Alright, here's a few proverbs from the most ancient civilization, ancient Sumer. They had their own proverbs as well. Like a boat, he always comes up in the water. Okay? Uh, we have variations of this. Uh, in a negative sense, we say someone is, or something is like, what, a bad penny. Right? It keeps showing up. Uh, on the positive side, uh, you know, we have different ways of expressing that someone always wins. They're, they're always fortunate. They always come out ahead. Uh, secondly, he who becomes excitable should not become a foreman. Okay, in other words, uh, how do we say that We say something similar here in America. If you can't take the heat, yeah. what? get out of the kitchen. Right, so in other words, be prepared for what you're going to face. All right, a couple more here. A runaway slave girl sleeps badly. What does that mean? Your conscience will catch up with you, right? So uh, your conscience will catch up with you. And then she grumbles like a dog beaten with a throw stick. Uh, that wouldn't That wouldn't uh, be allowed today, right? That would be uh, politically incorrect, for sure. All right, and then in Africa, this is an interesting one, this first one. uh, I didn't really understand what it meant until it was explained. A good orphan is one that is licked by its mother. What they mean by that is there is no such thing as a good orphan. In other words, an orphan is a bad thing in any situation, so there's no such thing. So being without... Parental oversight is never a good thing, That's what they're trying to say. Secondly, big fish are caught with big fish hooks, right? There's a saying uh, we used to say when I was working in business, uh, it, it, it takes money to get money, right? In other words, you got to put out if you're going to be successful. Body is easily satisfied, but not the heart. Okay, that's an interesting one. And then you may be a star, but one day you will encounter your death. Okay, that's sort of morbid, but it's a it's a reality check, right? Don't get carried away. Don't get too big for your britches. Uh, understand that uh, eventually it will catch up with you. All right, so these are some proverbs from around the world uh, that help us to see every culture and every time has had proverbs that help them govern their lives. So when we come to The book of Proverbs, this is nothing new really since the beginning of human history. There have been proverbs to help people govern their lives and discern what is wise. So when we come to the book, we have to understand that uh, that is how uh, human culture has been since the beginning of time. All right, we want to begin then by looking at wisdom in the ancient Near East. Now, why I'm going to spend some time doing this is because. When we read the book of Proverbs, we tend to read it in a 21st century Western American sort of way, right? So we come to the book with certain expectations that we would have as modern Americans. The problem is uh, the book was written to an audience that was 3,000 basically years ago. So when we come to the book, like any other book of scripture, we really have to understand how did the ancient people understand the wisdom of the book? Remember, first Kings four said that Solomon was, was what? Remember what chapter four said? He was wiser than all the sons of the east and wiser than the Egyptians. Okay. So what does that mean? If Solomon was wiser than all of those other sages, what does that presuppose? The Egyptians okay. were pretty wise, and so the ones from the East. Say that one more time, the first part. The Egyptians were fairly wise. Okay, so the Egyptians so were wise. Yep, and the Mesopotamians, the men from the East, the Edomites. You had something, sir, that you said? He's the wisest man. Okay. Okay, so he was the wisest man. So, in other words, it's presupposing that his wisdom is compared to the wisdom of these other sages, right? In other words... Solomon isn't in a corner of his palace musing darkly in a corner about wisdom. His wisdom is, I'll use a fancy word, (coughs) polemical And what we mean by that is his wisdom is tested and compared to the wisdom of other sages. So for Solomon to be the wisest man means... The Israelites were familiar with the wisdom of these other sages. So in other words, Solomon wasn't creating uh, the book of Proverbs in a vacuum, right? And moreover, uh, do you think Solomon just sat down one day and, and wrote the book of Proverbs start to finish? Do you think that that's how it happened? Probably not, right? Probably Solomon is, over the course of his life, composing Proverbs and hearing Proverbs from other places, I was reading one author the other day, he said he he used to think that the book of Proverbs was sort of like uh, the scribes of Solomon's court would go out two by two with a big bag full of pottery shards, and they would go sit in the marketplace and listen to people, and when they heard something exciting or wise, they would write it down and then get back to the court, and they would sort all the shards and figure out which ones were the best or not. Okay, that's probably an unlikely scenario, but it does at least show that Solomon's wisdom is probably in conversation with other sages. Okay, so why am I saying all this? Basically, the point is we have to understand how Solomon's wisdom compares and contrasts the wisdom of the ancient world. Okay, so page eight, I want to just point out a few things, beginning with how wisdom was thought of in the ancient Near East. Because this is interesting uh, as a point of comparison. What is wisdom? In ancient Mesopotamia, wisdom was this, intelligence and skill that enabled one to perform practical deeds, particularly deeds for the benefit of the gods. Uh, If you look at the, the last sentence there, Akkadian terms for wisdom meant something that was well thought out, deliberate, or skilled, something intelligent, something that had expertise. So in the ancient world, to be wise... Meant that you were a skilled, proficient craftsman. Okay, so we would think of it in these terms. When we need major surgery done, who do we want to go to? You know, not someone who flunked out of med school, right? We want somebody who's skilled and proficient at the top of their trade. Okay, and and that's what wisdom was in the ancient Near East. It was someone who was skilled and had craftsman sort of abilities. Now think about Solomon, and can you think of an instance, and we noted it here on the board, where the story stresses that he had skilled craftsmen assisting him when he was building the temple. So you remember uh, the the individuals uh, that were involved both in the temple and in the tabernacle earlier under Moses, Bezalel. Uh, they were described as skilled craftsmen. And in the ancient world, this was what a sage was. He had some sort of skill or expertise. Okay, if you go to page nine, this skill and expertise sometimes involved uh, the occult, that is to say, performing magic or doing something to manipulate the deity. Okay, so in the ancient world, this was critical. Uh, for sages to be able to uh, manipulate the gods or talk to the gods and be able to uh, discern their voice. Uh, This is why, for instance, I think the book of Genesis presents Joseph as a sage. Why? Because he's wiser than all the Egyptian wise men in the sense that he can interpret the dream. So he has access to the divine Uh, significance of that dream and so in in the egyptian culture in particular joseph would have been understood to be uh, a paramount sage that far surpassed his superiors so this is what wisdom was in that next paragraph on page nine who was the greatest sage ultimately it was the king the king was supposed to be the one who had the most wisdom and how would a king show his wisdom he would build a temple this is exactly what solomon does What Solomon does in 1 Kings is what every wise king in the ancient Near East would do. If they're wise, they protect their people and they build a temple that pleases God, their God, whoever it may be. So Solomon is doing this for the real God, the Lord Yahweh. Moreover, the kings had sages who would, uh, scribes who would collect and compile these proverbs. So Solomon seems to have had that as well. And in fact, we find a trace of this later in the book. If you look at Proverbs, I don't know which chapter you're in now, but if you look at chapter 25 and verse 1, I'm going to talk about this when we get to the structure of the book. Uh, It says, These are more Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Okay, what's interesting about this? Well, these are Solomon's Proverbs that who is copying? Hezekiah's scribes. Now, was Hezekiah a contemporary of Solomon? If you're familiar with the history, no. He comes about 250 years later. Okay, so in other words, the book of Proverbs seems to have had a preliminary form and then a later form. And these scribes are collecting and, and editing and putting them together. And this is all done in the biblical book of Proverbs under divine inspiration. Okay, so this is what a sage would be like in ancient Mesopotamia, all right? Page 10, just wanna mention something about uh, the origins of Mesopotamian wisdom. So if if in Mesopotamian wisdom, a, a wise sage was someone skilled and someone who could hear from God and disseminate the divine wisdom, they believe that wisdom itself came from God. From the gods, and in their case, uh, they thought that there was this intermediary being. Some, some uh, the, this group of individuals, which was uh, between the divine realm and the human realm, and they brought wisdom and culture to the earth. This is very similar to how the Book of Genesis opens, and there are skilled craftsmen. you Remember Tubal Cain and his, his uh, contemporaries who bring certain arts to uh, culture. They believe that wisdom and culture came directly from the gods and were brought by intermediaries. All right, so let's turn to page 11. I want to just point out a few things here. So in ancient Samaria, a a wise man was able to uh, get essentially what he wanted from the god. He was able to manipulate... God to get what he wanted. And so these sages were versed in the occultic arts, and they would also spend their time uh, thinking about uh, wisdom and how to make wise pronouncements about life, okay? So we have some examples here of, of these wisdom sayings that they would say. And so wisdom was primarily a technical proficiency of some sort, okay? When we think of wisdom, We probably think of someone who's uh, successful maybe in a business career or is able to uh, make certain decisions that get him or her ahead in life. In ancient Samaria, uh, it was someone who pleased the gods and therefore had some sort of technical proficiency or success. This is what wisdom was. All right, so that's ancient Mesopotamia. Let's look at uh, Egyptian wisdom. At the bottom of page 11 there, Egyptian wisdom and its connection to Proverbs. Okay, now on page 12. In, in Egypt, sages emphasized success and ethics. Okay, Egyptian wisdom literature was a little bit different from Sumerian wisdom literature. If Sumerian wisdom literature focused really on the occultic arts and those sorts of things, uh, Egyptian wisdom literature was focused on attaining harmony, success, and good behavior or ethics. Ethics. And they had a very important term uh, that I want to just mention here on page 12. It's this idea of ma'at. This is an Egyptian word which means something like cosmic harmony. Okay, so the Egyptian pharaoh was supposed to be, he was really seen as the embodiment of the god, the sun god. And he was supposed to preserve the equilibrium and balance of society. If things got out of whack, Okay, we sort of feel that way in our country right now. There's a lot of uh, just unrest, right? People are just restless and anxious because it seems like things are out of whack. And in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh was supposed to keep things in order. Okay, So think about what the plagues did from that perspective, right? The whole world was turned upside down. The pharaoh wasn't doing his job. So in Egyptian wisdom literature, cosmic harmony and balance was the ideal that was to be achieved, all right, and so they uh, would write about this in their instruction literature, and you can read through some of this and uh, learn about it. I just want to touch on the bottom of page 12 there. I have a heading, The Relationship Between Proverbs 22 and the Wisdom of Amenemope. Okay, this is an interesting story. Uh, Going back to the early 20th century, there was a discovery in an antiques shop in Egypt of this Uh, ancient Egyptian wisdom writing. And the thought was, once it was discovered, that this was the basis of the biblical book of Proverbs in chapter 22. Okay, and I kind of go through some of the details of how that story went. I want to just show you this because uh, this will become significant when we get later into the book. If you turn to page 15, turn to page 15. When this wisdom writing was translated and then, compared to the Book of Proverbs, suddenly uh, scholars noted there are a lot of similarities. In fact, let's let's turn there, Proverbs twenty-two. Okay, uh, what most modern contemporary versions do is they've amended the text. That means they've uh, changed the Hebrew word in its vowel points. Uh, and, and notice this verse 17 says, pay attention and listen to the sayings of the wise. Okay. So this is suggesting that this is a new section in the book. It's the sayings of the wise, meaning other sages. And then look at verse 20. If you have an NIV, for instance, and I think the ESV might say it this way as well. It says, have I not written 30 sayings for you? Now, why does that say 30 sayings? Does anybody have a version that says something different there?
0: Just written you excellent things. Haven't
1: I read to you excellent things? Haven't I read to you excellent things? Okay. Alright, now why is there a discrepancy there? The way the Hebrew word is written is written to say, uh, haven't I... The, the word essentially means previously or earlier written you worthy things. And the idea is now he's going to say something else. What many biblical scholars did when they saw this instruction of amenemope they changed the vowels and that's a technical discussion i'm not going to get into the details of what that means but they they read that word a different way to say 30 sayings why because amenemope has 30 sayings what they're saying what the biblical translators here the niv are saying is solomon is is borrowing or he's using amenemope in this section Okay, now, most people who read this won't even realize that's what's going on, but that's what the NIV is essentially saying. Now, why they say that is because there do seem to be some similarities. Look at, at page 15 there. On the left side is, are the Proverbs from this section, and on the right side are uh, the Proverbs from this wisdom writing from Egypt. Proverbs 22.22 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. Amenemope says, guard yourself from robbing the poor, from being violent to the weak. Proverbs says, make make no friendship with a man given to anger. Okay, Amenemope says, do not associate with a rash man or approach him for conversation. Okay. Proverbs, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will will stand before kings, he will not stand before obscure men. Amenemope says, as for the scribe who is experienced in his office, he will find himself worthy to be a courtier. Proverbs says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is put before you. Put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Amenemope says, do not eat food in the presence of a noble or cram your mouth in front of him. If you are satisfied, pretend to chew. It is pleasant in your saliva. Look at the cup in front of you and let it serve your need. Proverbs says, do not speak in the hearing of a fool. He will despise the good sense of your word. Amenemope says, do not pour out your heart to everybody so that you diminish respect for you, for yourself. Okay, so the question becomes, is Solomon structuring this section on the basis of the Egyptian wisdom writing. And if he is, is that a problem for us who believe in divine inspiration and inerrancy? What do you think? Right, so uh, you know, there's a saying, all, all truth is God's truth, right? And we qualify that a little bit by saying, okay, that's true, but that doesn't mean the phone book is on the same part of Scripture, right? So in other words, we believe in the divine inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture. Okay, But when we're dealing with wisdom literature, can we glean things from those who are coming from a different perspective? That is, in other words, uh, this wisdom writing, uh, ostensibly not written in the Egyptian wisdom writing by Yahweh worshiping you know, true believers, can we still glean something from them? Okay, we would say, yeah, kind of a qualified yes, right? To an extent, maybe. Okay, so if Solomon is is basing or structuring his section here on wisdom from Egypt, is that a problem for us? It's still a wise saying. It's still a wise saying.
0: I mean, it is what it is. If he did take it from
1: it, he did. Right. If he did, and I'm not saying that he did, but if he did, we would say this is still God's uh, spin or take, if you will, on what the Egyptian wisdom writing said. Okay, so there's been a lot of debate. You can read through this. Uh, I initially was of the opinion that these are completely different because even though they're similar, we could argue that they're both simply taking common wisdom themes and applying them in their given situation. And I think that that's possibly what's going on. What sort of began to push me a little bit in the other direction is the fact that uh, I had attended a paper at an academic conference uh, a few years ago that definitively seemed to prove that Amenemope preceded Solomon by 200 plus years. If that's the case, uh, there's another scholar that says he, he thinks the instruction of Amenemope was, uh, had an Aramaic translation uh, in Israel. I don't know if that's the case or not, but if it is the case, it's possible that Solomon, because he's comparing his wisdom to these other wisdom writings, is showing how his take on this is better than Amenemope. And I would say that's the case. When I read through Proverbs 22 and I compare it to Amenemope, Amenemope has some good things to say, but Proverbs is more concise, memorable, and true than Amenemope. Okay. But all this does at least suggest that Solomon isn't doing his wisdom in a vacuum. Okay. His wisdom is compared and contrasted to other uh, parts of wisdom. If you look at Page 16, there are a number of issues here that are problems uh, about comparing these two works. I'll let you read through that uh, and you can uh, make a determination on your own. Okay, we only have a couple minutes left, so I want to end here on page 17 by talking about wisdom in Israel. So we've talked about Mesopotamia and Egypt, how they viewed wisdom. How did Israel view wisdom? I give you there a number of words uh, that they used for wisdom, such as Hokma, which is experience and insight. Uh, I want to point out two particular important observations, though. In that last paragraph on page 17, a few things. First, Israelite wisdom includes a moral element that is largely absent from Mesopotamian wisdom. In other words, uh, in Israel, in Israel, wisdom made a person righteous, okay, so in other words, there's a modern attempt to divorce uh, content and instruction from moral reformation, right, in other words, we're supposed to just as as teachers give content and and fill the students' heads with knowledge, but we're not necessarily supposed to make moral pronouncements. Uh, In biblical ways of thinking, that would be the height of folly, you, you can't uh, give someone wisdom unless you transform their character as well. So wisdom is not just supposed to make you smart. It's supposed to make you good and righteous. And so Israelite wisdom stressed the moral element. The wise man is righteous. He's not just uh, filthy rich and successful. He's good. He pleases God. So there's a moral element. Okay, and this begins with the fear of the Lord, right? The theme verse of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fool disregards the Lord. Okay, so that's the basis for wisdom. Page 18. Second, there's less emphasis upon mantic wisdom. What we mean by that is wisdom is more practical in Israel. It's not focused on esoteric, hidden things. It's not focused on the occult or, uh, you know, placating the demonic realm. It's focused on pleasing the Lord and applying that God-pleasing wisdom to practical matters of life, okay? And then number three, within Israelite wisdom, there's a greater emphasis on the theology of creation, okay? So we're going to see this as we work through Proverbs that at every turn, Solomon is referring in some aspect to the creation and fall, the Lord is the creator. He's the maker. And so uh, what does Ecclesiastes say? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. So Solomon is going to stress that because God is the creator, he is sovereign. And because he is sovereign, his wisdom surpasses the human limitations. We can only know so much. We're finite creatures. And Ecclesiastes is grapples with that question how can a finite man transcend his limitations ultimately the answer is he can't he simply has to be wise with what god gives him and so proverbs is really focused on how do we please the creator how do we structure our lives as god created us to be right there this whole gender debate that's going on in america today what we're trying to do is rewrite the structure and design of our identity as people and so solomon is saying the lord is saying We have to live in the purposes for which God made us. And when we do that, we will gain wisdom and have success, be pleasing to the Lord, and be discerning people who make wise decisions at the right time. Okay, so that's what wisdom was in Israel. I'm looking forward to our study together. Our time is up. I hope I haven't scared you away tonight, uh, but we'll look forward to continuing this next week. We'll try to finish this introduction and then we'll begin, uh, plotting our way through the book. All right. Uh, let me close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your kindness in allowing us this short window of time this evening to to look into the book of Proverbs. And although it's just introduction, we pray that this will be helpful as we think about the book. I pray that you'd help us as we think through it and read it, that we would be inculcating it into our lives, into our minds and hearts, so that we might be wise people who please you in every respect. I pray that you'd give us wisdom this week in all the
0: choices that we navigate as we seek to serve you and to live out our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.